No food or drink for 30 minutes. Spit to fill line. Wow, that's a lot of spit we gotta put in there. <laughs> <laughs> Close funnel, detached funnel. So a few months ago, I talked my friend Valerie into doing a bit of an at-home experiment with me. Should I do a few? I'm like getting yeah, some We ordered genetic testing kits online and they arrived at my house a few days later. So on this Saturday afternoon, we're sitting across from one another at my kitchen table with these small clear test tubes collecting our human specimen samples. In other words, we're spitting. And once we each fill our test tube with an inch and a half of saliva, we prepare them to ship off to a lab in North Carolina. We put our tubes into a plastic bag and then into a shipping box. It says biohazard on it. (laughs) And in six to eight weeks, we'll each receive a readout of our entire genetic code. You know, the reason I want you to do this is because I think we're going to have opposite alleles. Like, I think our genetics are going to be opposite at this one location. <laughs> Can just, you... just one location? <laughs> I suspect it might be more than just one. <laughs> okay. Uh... Obviously, Valerie is right. We probably have very different genes at many locations in our DNA. Physically, we are pretty different. She is this petite woman, blue eyes, straight hair with a dimple in one cheek. I have broad shoulders with deep-set green-gray eyes, curly hair. But the specific gene I'm interested in has little to do with our physical appearance and more to do with how we feel about the world. So, okay, but here's what I wanted to say. Okay. So I think, like, something that's caused me a lot of distress in every single relationship I've ever had, like romantic, but then also, like, sometimes friendships, is that I'm overly sensitive. And so I feel hurt, for example, if, like, you know... I tell Valerie that I often feel really hurt when someone just takes a long time to respond to a text message. Or say I invite someone to hang out, and they bail on me at the last minute. I take that kind of thing really, really personally. Like That's happened in relationships, and it, like kills me like I feel so hurt and I almost like spiral into like they don't love me anymore Mm. does that even like is that even an experience that you can relate to (laughs) Valerie just kind of looks at me at this point and I can tell she doesn't really relate There is definitely a part of me that knows that what I'm saying is crazy. I have a hypersensitivity to rejection. If someone ignores me, I feel excruciating pain. And it makes me do insane things. Case in point, one time a boyfriend didn't respond fast enough to a text I sent him. So I called him and called him and called him again over 20 times in an hour. Like, what the hell? Why do I go mental when this happens to me? And I thought it was like, oh, something my parents did, which maybe it is. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like maybe my parents like weren't available emotionally and like I got, you know, whatever. So then <clears throat> I came across this interesting research. <laughs> right, the research and the genetic test. There may actually be a biological explanation 
I might be experiencing more pain than other people in these situations. And it may be something in my genes. About one in five people have a variation of a specific gene that might be making them more sensitive, potentially making them feel more hurt by rejection. And obviously, I am so convinced that I am one of these people and that Valerie isn't. I would definitely say that's a good hypothesis. So if this turns out to be the case, I feel like I have a genetic explanation for why all my relationships have failed and why I feel devastated at every moment in a relationship. This is an inexact science. My name is Lisa Cantrell. Here we go. So somewhere around 1985, I think, that I was at a park uh, with my dog uh, laying on a blanket near a lake and a Frisbee rolled up. This is Kip Williams. He's a psychologist at Purdue University who is interested in understanding rejection. I told him, I want to know if my biology makes me more susceptible to feeling rejected. And he said, look, before you can even ask that question, you have to figure out how to create rejection in the laboratory, which is exactly what Kip Williams did. And he told me the story that set this all into motion. He was out with his pet dog in a grassy park one day, and a Frisbee rolled up next to him. I picked it up and turned around and saw two guys waiting for it. Kip says he threw that Frisbee back to those two guys, and he was just about to sit back down when one of them threw the Frisbee back to him, kind of inviting him to play this impromptu game. We never talked to each other. Kip says they never even introduced themselves. We were just throwing the uh, Frisbee around. And then Kip says something kind of weird happened. At some point, they just stopped throwing it to me. He kind of thought they were just messing with him at first. Like maybe they were going to say, just kidding, at any moment and start throwing it to him again. But after a minute, it became clear that no, they were done playing with him and they were now ignoring him. It was in that moment that he started to get that sinking sensation that we have all felt before. Rejection. I was feeling pretty bad and awkward, and I went back to my dog and uh, petted my dog and and just uh, wasn't feeling good. But then, at the same time, it dawned on me that what a simple, uh, sort of context-free situation that was, and that would be something I could do in the laboratory where I get people to engage in some sort of frisbee toss or ball toss activity and then have two of the people just stop throwing it to the person. Kip developed a game called Cyberball based on this real-life experience. In the game, you sit down in front of a computer, and you are told that you will be playing with two other people online, so you don't actually see the people, you just see their avatars on the screen, and you toss a virtual ball back and forth. At some point, though, the other two players stop throwing the ball to you. Kip says, this really works. People playing cyberball, they feel rejected. 
within five minutes, they uh, are slumped in their chair and they're looking down at the floor. Even when Kip tells people afterwards that this is all fake, that they're actually just playing against a computer that is programmed to exclude them, he says that sometimes people still feel hurt. The feeling can be that powerful. After successfully creating this feeling of rejection in the lab, Kip turns his attention to the brain. What does rejection look like at a neurological level? He teams up with two other researchers at the University of California, Los Angeles, Naomi Eisenberger and Matthew Lieberman, and they had people play cyberball while their brains were being scanned in an fMRI machine. What the researchers found was pretty startling. A very particular part of the brain was activated while people were feeling rejected. The dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, which is the same region of the brain that is activated when you experience physical pain. This was not what they were expecting. What we had known before is that when you experience physical pain, like say for example you stump your toe, it's the anterior cingulate cortex that lights up and signals to the rest of the brain that you're hurting. What Kip and his colleagues found was that that same pain center in the brain, the anterior cingulate cortex, is also activated when we're ghosted or when we're dumped, when we are feeling rejected. In these cases, we experience what is called social pain. From an evolutionary perspective, that does make a fair bit of sense. This is Bernadette Fitzgibbon. She is a medical researcher at Monash University in Australia. As a species, uh, social connection is really fundamental to our survival. Bernadette says that pain, social or physical, is a signal to tell us something is wrong and to make us act. When we stand too close to a fire, physical pain tells us to move away from the fire. Social pain that comes from being excluded or rejected may be doing something similar to us. To say, hey, you've been isolated, get back over there, you know, like a little alert to you to say you've lost your mates, you better go back. Um, that's going to promote survival and that's what's really important to us as a species. For tens of thousands of years, our ancestors moved in nomadic tribes, creating shelter, hunting, and caring for young together. We depended a lot on others, and if you happened to wander off from the group, you likely would not survive. So feeling social pain was good. It would drive you to stay connected to others. The anterior cingulate cortex, it's kind of like an alarm system. When something bad is happening that puts you in danger, it sends out a signal that hopefully pushes you to do something about it. And Bernadette says that this alarm system, it can differ across individuals. The important thing to remember is that pain is ultimately an experience. Uh, there is huge variability. It's a variability that corresponds to brain activation. People who feel more hurt during rejection as well as more hurt during physically painful events, they have a more reactive anterior cingulate cortex, which I feel like could describe me. Bernadette says, yeah, it's totally possible, and there are ways I could fix this. It's called a cingulotomy. Which sounds great to me. Sign me up. 
until she tells me what they actually do to your anterior cingulate cortex. It's essentially removed. Bernadette says this is only done in extreme cases, obviously, so not necessarily a remedy to keep me from feeling excruciating pain when someone doesn't respond to my text message. In that context, definitely not. I should point out that the anterior cingulate cortex is not the only pain region in the brain. Pain is actually processed in several areas, and Bernadette says we are still learning about the overlap between social and physical pain. But in the meantime, I want to understand why some of us may be experiencing more activation in this part of the brain. Okay, my name is John Carlos Subieta. Jankar Subieta is in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of uh, Utah Health Sciences. And he studies how our biology and experiences influence one another. When I asked him why some people may be more sensitive to pain, he said it may have something to do with endorphins. You probably heard about those in the context of things like, uh, you know, the high that runners may experience. Endorphins, Jankar says, are actually our body's natural painkillers. They are opioids, which Jankar says many people don't realize. When, when you hear the word opioid system or opioids, you tend to think of uh, medications used for pain or medications you can actually abuse like heroin or even prescription opioids. The reality is that this system is uh, in our bodies, in our brains. Say you're running a long distance and your legs begin to ache. Parts of your brain, such as the anterior cingulate cortex, become activated and create that experience of pain. But then your brain, to combat that pain, releases opioids, such as endorphins. Those endorphins rush in and attach to neuron receptors and actually stop neurons from firing. Effectively, they stop the feeling of pain. And it doesn't just work for physical pain. Jankar told me about a study he helped to conduct at the University of Michigan. In that study, the researchers gave people a rejection task, kind of like cyberball, and they found that opioids are released to alleviate feelings of rejection as well. But, Jankar says, We saw that there was um, enormous, uh, there were enormous differences in the capacity to activate this system. Some people in that study, Jankar says, were not able to counteract the pain of rejection as well as others, because it appears that these people have fewer receptors in their brains for the endorphins to attach to. And get this, the lack of receptors is due in part to our genetics. We all have a gene called OPRM1. There are two variations of the gene. You either have an A allele or a G allele. Most people carry two A alleles, one from each parent, and these people seem to have a fairly normal functioning opioid system. However, about 15 to 20 percent of the population has a G allele, and these G carriers, as they are called, they are the ones who seem to be more sensitive to pain potentially because their brains produce fewer opioid receptors. And here's what I'm hearing from you, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that you know, a G carrier, for example, if we're, if we're thinking about genetics, 
uh, they either they might have fewer receptors in certain areas of the brain, so they're not as able to mount a response to a stressor or to social rejection, and so they experience more suffering. Correct. Uh, you would have less capacity to uh, suppress your uh, response to these events simply because you have less receptors. You know, the reason I want you to do this is because I think we're going to have opposite alleles. Like, I think our genetics are going to be opposite at this one location. <laughs> Can just, you... just one location? <laughs> Remember when Valerie and I did that genetic test? This was why. After learning about the OPRM1 gene and G carriers, I wondered if maybe this was what had been happening to me my whole life. Maybe I have fewer opioid receptors, so my brain can't combat pain as well. Um, I'm recording already, by the way. So Valerie and I are back at my kitchen table. About six weeks have passed since we were last here spitting into those test tubes, and our results arrived from the lab via an email. Now we're uh, opening them up. Okay, so whose do you want to look at first? Uh, I don't know. Let's look at yours first. I want to look at yours first. (laughs) How do we resolve that? I open Valerie's genome file first. And there we are, hovering over my laptop, scrolling together through lines of her genetic code. So this is chromosome six. Mm -hmm. I suspect Valerie is not a G carrier, which is why I asked her to do this with me. She does not seem overly sensitive to physical or social pain. That would mean she very likely has the more frequent AA form of the OPRM1 gene. I go to the search bar and type in the information to find out. So you just copy and paste it in there in the search? Yeah. In my genome text. Oh, fuck yeah. Oh yeah, AA. There it is. I'm definitely an AA. (laughs) You can tell Valerie is pretty excited to find out she doesn't have any biological predisposition to feeling excruciating pain. I feel half victorious at this point, knowing that at least part of my prediction is correct. We then pull up my genome results. Let's look at mine. What about yours? My heart is beating out of my chest at this point. My hands actually start to shake a little. Valerie looks at me and asks why I'm so nervous. Why does this matter so much to me? It's just that my whole life, I have felt so weak. I cry too much. I feel hurt by things that I should just be able to let roll off of me. I've looked at others and wondered why I couldn't be like them, less phased by what people said to me or didn't say to me. And suddenly, in the past few months, there has been, on the horizon, this possibility that maybe all of my feelings have been valid. That maybe I actually haven't been overreacting all these years. Maybe I've always been responding in the only way that I could, given how much pain I was actually experiencing. Pain that maybe other people simply don't feel. That is, if I'm a G-carrier. So, with Valerie beside me, my sweaty, shaky hands moistening the keyboard, I search for my OPRM1 gene. Okay. I can't really see. What would you tell me if I if I told you that I actually got the clever idea that maybe I was a G carrier and so I I tested myself. And are you and you are a G carrier? Are you? I I am a G carrier. Yeah. 
That's right. I am a G carrier, which honestly feels good. I feel validated. According to all this research, it means I likely have fewer opioid receptors. I may actually release fewer endorphins when I'm in pain. My anterior cingulate cortex? Yeah, it probably goes crazy with activity when I'm socially or physically hurt. But am I trapped in this biology? I mean, did I come all this way only to confirm to myself that I am forever doomed to feel unbearable pain each time someone ghosts me or doesn't answer a text? Well, that's a great question, actually. Jankar says there are some things I can do to change it. I mean, you have to think that this is a system that becomes active when there is things like exercise or stressors. I mean, exercise is a form of physical stress in many ways, right? Jankar says that I can beef up my opioid system, possibly create more receptors or at least make my endorphins release faster or more efficiently simply by doing physically painful things like running long distances or playing physically demanding sports. When you do that, your brain becomes more accustomed to going through the process of releasing opioids and activating receptors, and it can get better at counteracting pain, physical and social, just through practice. Um, so in many ways, you are training the system. Yeah, yeah. So that sounds, I mean, it sounds like too easy of a fix, but one possibility is I could go do martial arts and be very well trained, and my system might might work a little more on the ready. Is that? <laughs> yeah, for example, you could do that. You could yoga, you know, it's equally good for these things, a good physical exercise. You can run marathons. I mean, you know, <laughs> whatever you feel <laughs> may work for you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about the marathon. Yeah, neither but... <laughs> do I. <laughs> Actually, I am happy to report that since learning all this and talking to Jankar, I have been training for a marathon. Well, actually a half marathon, but you know, baby steps. Thank you to the researchers who contributed to this episode, Kip Williams, Bernadette Fitzgibbon, and Jankar Subieta. Additional help came from Adele Selkie, Trent Simmons, and Judy Grizel. A special thank you to my dear friend Valerie Cross, who allowed me to download her entire genetic code onto my computer. I will definitely be blackmailing her with it in the future. The music you heard on this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Opening and closing music is, as always, from the amazing Follies. This podcast is funded in part by a grant from the Association for Psychological Science.